In the 19th century, the United States saw one of its greatest worship songwriters ever. Her name was Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby wrote over 8,000 hymns of praise to God. She no doubt was an amazing woman. But one thing that's so amazing about her is the reality that she was physically blind. She tells her story like this. She says, when I was about six weeks old, I was taken sick and my eyes grew, weir- grew very weak. And those who had charge of me poulticed my eyes, which means they put a rag over with some medicinal qualities that are hoping that they would heal her eyes. But she said, their lack of knowledge and skill destroyed my sight forever. As I grew older, they told me I should never see the faces of my friends, the flowers of the field, the blue of the sky, or the golden beauty of the stars. Soon I learned what other children possessed. But I made up my mind to store away a little jewel in my heart, which I called content. She was only eight years old when she wrote these words. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. They once asked asked Fanny Crosby, Do you wish you had not been blinded? And she said this, Well, the good thing about being blind is that the very first face I'll see will be the face of Jesus. What gives somebody the ability in the face of a true frustration, struggle, disability to say how many blessings I enjoy that others don't? What, what is there about this woman? Because I want to know. I want to know what it means to be able to write 8,000 hymns of praise as a blind person because you've got so much to be grateful for. What drives a person like her to worship in the face of adversity? What drives our brothers and sisters in Nigeria who just this past week, several were gunned down in worship by an extremist Islamic group, Boko Haram, and yet they continue to pray and worship. What drives them to worship when their lives are be taken for the gospel? Or Pastor Y. Wo Ni from Vietnam, who was imprisoned for seven years for standing up to his faith, for, 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 for his faith. He was released just last month. What, what brings a person like this to continue to worship God in the face of adversity? Because their response is contrary to what our response is by nature. Matt Redman, the writer of the song, The Heart of Worship, says this of Fanny Crosby. Many people might have chosen the path of bitterness and complaint as their response to God. But she chose the path of contentment and praise. The choice between these two paths face us each day with every situation that's thrown our way. Bitterness dampens and eventually destroys love for God. It eats away at the statement, God is love, and tells us instead that He is not faithful. But contentment does the opposite. It fuels the heart 
with endless reasons to praise God. And there are endless reasons to praise Him. And there are. God wants us to be an unquenchable worshiper of Him. And to be an unquenchable worshiper, we need to view our blessings in Christ, not simply in the material realm, because what's material is not guaranteed. Our sight is not promised to us. Our protection and worship is not physically promised to us. That we won't be persecuted, that's not promised. But there are blessings in Christ that are promised. And this is why Paul was an unquenchable worshiper. And this is who God is calling us to be. Because when we consider all that is ours in Christ, we've got nothing but to praise God and thanks to Him. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. In Greek, that's one sentence. That's a grammatical nightmare to most. But I almost get the sense that Paul is saying, I can't put my pen down here. I've got to keep this thing going. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then as Pastor Ralph opened last week, in Him we have... Uh, in, <laughs> asked that already. Um, help me here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to His purpose, with which He set forth in the Beloved, to the praise of His glorious grace. This is what the Father has given to us. And it's to the praise of His glorious grace. We can't help but praise God because He's chosen and adopted us. And this week, we're going to see that Paul, Paul didn't put down his pen there. He kept it going. And verses 7 through 14, he lays out numerous blessings that are ours in Christ that bring us to this place of worship. And I'm going to summarize them under two headings. The first is verses 7 through 10, that we have been blood-bought. And that's reason for praise. And verses 11 through 14, that our salvation has been secured, sealed by the Spirit. And that's reason for praise. Now, I find it challenging to say that God is worthy of praise for what He's done for us because truly, He's worthy of praise regardless what He does. He is God. He is good. But He's extended His love to us. He's chosen us. He's adopted us. And we'll see today, He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's lavished His grace upon us. He's given us an inheritance. He's sealed us with His Spirit. This is all that we have in Christ. The beauty of this passage, we see how the Father works, 3 through 6, how the Son is at work, 7 through 11, and how the Spirit works, uh, 13 through 14. And we have so much, so much to be grateful for. God is worthy of praise. So let us open Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 7 through 10 first. Follow with me. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ 
as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. God is worthy of praise because He has bought us with His blood. In Him we have redemption through His blood, is what Paul writes. Redemption. Redemption means deliverance. It means to be set free. It is definitive. It does, need, does not need repeating. We have been redeemed. Now, to, to be redeemed implies that there was a bondage. There was an enslavement. There was something we needed to be redeemed from. And the Bible shows us at least five different things that we see that, that hold us in bondage, that we need deliverance from. The first one is the broadest one. It's our sin. Our sin holds us as a slave. That's why we do the things we don't want to do. And that's why, apart from Jesus, we have no power to do good, truly. We are enemies of God. Our sin keeps us as a slave. The second thing, though, that keeps us as a slave is the reality of death. Death. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, death entered the world, and you and I will die. We will die. And that's a result, a consequence of the fall. And apart from Jesus, though, there is an eternal death, an eternal separation from God. And that is our course apart from Jesus. Our sin has separated us from God and will bring us to death, not just physical, but ultimately eternal. And we need redemption. A third thing is that Satan keeps us enslaved. If he, uh, Hebrews 2 tells us that he keeps us enslaved by the fear of death. Hebrews 2, 14, 15. Satan holds us in bondage. A fourth thing is the law. See, God set up a standard because he knows if we walk in that standard, we can enjoy life to the fullest because it's walking as he has made us to walk. But again, that, that enslavement to sin makes us making God's standard impossible. We fall short. We cannot keep God's law. Therefore, our lives are miserable apart from Him. We try to do God's law. We try to do good. And we can't do it because we have no power in ourselves to do it. So we're in bondage to the law. And these four things keep us enslaved. And we need deliverance from them. But even the greatest thing that we need deliverance from is what these things have brought about. Romans 1 tells us the wrath of God it's poured out on all ungodliness. And at the end of the day, it's God's wrath that we mostly need redemption from. And this is a reality of the scriptures that we study. That God is a loving God, but He's also a just God. And in His wrath, he is directed, it is directed towards sin. God hates sin. He hates sin. But He's provided solutions. In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. What a beautiful picture of God, of, the God of love and the God of justice. How they, they kissed the cross and the spilled blood of Jesus. And that's what God has offered to us. You want to consider yourself blessed? You should if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Him. Because you've been redeemed. You've been redeemed. It says, in Him we have redemption. Not that we will be redeemed. It is a present tense. Now, there is a future reality to this, 
But there is a present reality that we have been redeemed. You no longer are a slave. That's the language of redemption, that we were slaves. When a slave was set free, he no longer needed to obey his previous master. And Jesus has set you free by his blood. I think of Israel when they were in Egypt. If you recall that they were slaves there and the Egyptians were their taskmasters. And Moses came with different miracles saying, set my people free. Pharaoh did not let it happen until that last plague, the death of the firstborn sons. And the people of Israel made it out. Why? Because the blood of a lamb on the doorposts. And though they were in bondage, they would be set free and they would walk out of Egypt because the blood had covered them. And so it is for us in Christ. Although we're enslaved, Christ has set us free by his blood. And oh, how Israel, when trials came, said, send us back to Egypt. And oh, how often we go back to our old slavery. But God said, that's not who you are. Your spiritual blessings is that you've been redeemed. Don't walk as a slave. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. Our trespasses is is a deliberate rebellion. It's it's a different word than we find for sin, although they're related. uh, Trespasses means that we've overstepped the boundary. Sin means we've missed the mark. Trespassing means we've overstepped a boundary. It it gives us the idea of a deliberate rebellion. And that is our place apart from God. We've rebelled against God. Reminds me of the story that St. Augustine shares when he was 16 years old. He talks about how he didn't know God. He didn't love God. And he remembers one one of the sins he had committed. And he writes this out in his autobiography. It's in the form of a prayer to God. And this is what he says when he and several of his friends went to a neighbor's uh, garden, overstepped the boundary, and stole pears from their neighbor's tree. He writes this, Those pears that we stole were fair to the sight because they were your creation. You're fairest of all. You're the creator of all. You are a good God. God, the highest good and my true good. Those pears truly were pleasant to the sight, but it was not for them that my miserable soul lusted. For I had an abundance of even better. But those I plucked, simply that I might steal. For having plucked them, I threw them away. My soul gratification in them was being my own sin, which I was pleased to enjoy. See, he stole the pears not because he needed food. He stole the pears because his sin wanted to steal. He wanted to trespass that boundary, take what was not his, and then he threw it away. He lusted after it. He trespassed a standard. And that is our plight. But it says, in him, in Jesus, we have forgiveness for our trespasses. For every time we've trespassed God's standard, God has offered forgiveness. Redemption and forgiveness are ours. They are spiritual blessings. And they are ours because of God's grace. Look at that next statement. It says, According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God lavished His grace upon us. 
See, when, when God saw us in our sin, He didn't ration His grace to us. You ever been to Subway and they're counting, they're counting your olives? And you're like, come on. Like, they're counting the pickles, they're counting the, the tomatoes, and you feel like, I'm being rationed here, you know? God is not that way with His grace. God doesn't say, all right, I'm coming to this point. You've got to meet me halfway. Because remember, we're objects of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. We're hostile to God. We can't even get halfway. God knew that because it's according to his wisdom and insight that he needed to lavish his grace upon us. And that he did. He lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. It could cover our past sin. It could cover our present sin. It covered our future sin. It was lavished. It knew no boundaries. I remember when my in-laws, and I didn't ask for permission to share this story, but I've done it before, so. My mother-in-law could look in her room and have these great ideas. And their bedroom had white walls when they first entered into it, when they, when they bought their home. And she wanted to paint the room rapture red. Rapture red. And I remember Mike thinking, this is going to take a few coats. So what he did, he went out and got some pink primer and layered it on the walls. Did a, did a thorough job. It took several coats of primer just to get it on because the, the drywall is absorbing all the paint. Well, then came on the Rapture red. One layer, drywall sucked it up. Two layers, drywall sucked it up. I don't remember how many layers you had to put on. I'm going to guess it was five or six. Layers of rapture red paint. But after enough paint, the white color no longer could be seen. They had to lavish on the rapture red to cover it truly. In the same way, God has lavished his grace upon us with red, with his blood. And he's done so to the point where that sin is no longer seen. And ours is the righteousness of Christ offered to us. In Him, we have redemption. We've been redeemed the forgive, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, which He lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. Sometimes we look at the filth of our past and we think, God, are you really going to forgive that? And I know you forgive me, but God, when I was 16, I did. When I was 21, I... When I was 35, I... You think, God, can you really forgive that? And God says, you have the forgiveness of trespasses. These are the spiritual blessings that are yours in Christ. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And my grace has been lavished upon you. I think about Fanny Crosby. She's, she's enjoyed so many blessings and she just declared God's praise because she knew she had been redeemed. Are you an unquenchable worshiper when you consider your redemption, your forgiveness, God's grace in your life? Are you saying, God, if you did nothing else, you've done enough. Praise you. Regardless what my external circumstances tell me, I will praise you. Brother and sister, you've been blood-bought. That's the riches of God's grace because it was the wealth of His blood. And you no boundary. God did not get bankrupt. His grace was sufficient. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight.
We praise God because we've been blood bought. But we also praise God for what he is doing in a grander scheme of things. See, we tend to think that we are God's ultimate goal of redemption. Sometimes we think that the world revolves around humanity. And there is a, there is a truth in the sense where, where God has a special love for us. But he's working out a particular plan that we see in verses 9, that he made known the mystery of his will. What's the mystery of God's will? Well, which we see it in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. This is what it says. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, God has a grander plan of redemption and is not solely directed towards the Jews, but it's also to Gentiles like you and me. And this is the mystery of God's will that wasn't truly understood in the Old Testament by many, but it's revealed to us and we are recipients of it. But this is the mystery of God's will. But what's the ultimate plan of this? He's made known to us the mystery of his will. But it says that according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has a greater plan for all of creation that oftentimes we don't take notice of. In the fullness of time, God's going to pull everything back together. It feels like the world is, is slipping away. It feels like it's unraveling, like you pull a thread off your sweater and you just see it coming apart. That's what it feels like is happening in the world. And it's easy to despair when we see it. But here we're reminded God is sovereign. And just as he's pulling Jew and Gentile together, he will pull all things. He will unite all things to himself. Some people think, well, What's taking so long, God? Well, Second Peter 3, verses 8 and 9 said, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. And he goes on to say that the Lord will come, though, like a thief in the night. See, God is working even now to unite all things to Him. All things. You think of Philippians 2, where we're told that every knee will bow before Christ and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God will bring all things into submission to His Son and they will bow before Him. But do notice this. When God unites all things to Himself, that does not mean that all things will be redeemed eternally. Some things will be brought into redemption, into the presence of God, and some will be separated from Him for eternity. But God is still working to redeem all things. God is sovereign, and we need not despair, because we've been blood-bought. We've also seen that our self, we can also see that our salvation has been sealed. Verses 11 through 14. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We see some interesting changes here of pronouns. Now it begins in verse 11. In him we have obtained, which is not much different in verse 7. In him we have redemption. But in verse 12 we say, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Now that's a specific category of people Paul has in mind there. Who were the people who were the first to hope in Christ? And he differentiates them from those in verse 13. In him you also. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth. Paul's saying there are those, we who have obtained an inheritance, and we are the first to hope in Christ. And there is all, you also, when you heard the word of truth and believed. Who is the we referring to, and who is the you referring to? Now some people think that we is referring to a first generation of Christians, and you is referring to a second generation. So when we who are the first to hope in Christ... Uh, when we did this, we, we received an inheritance. It's a sure inheritance. And you also will receive the inheritance like we did. That's in mind there. And that's a possibility. But I think more accurately is that Paul has two groups of peoples in mind. The we referring to the Jewish people and the you referring to the Gentiles. And with this understanding, Paul is saying, we who were the Jews have been predestined to obtain an inheritance. We are part of God's chosen people, for we who now who hope in Christ have this guarantee to us. But you also, you Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, you also have received the Spirit like we have. And then you see in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. It's now collective, not just Jew, Gentile, but now we are one. We have received an inheritance. How do I know this? Well, I think it's from what we see in chapter 2. Look at verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles... See, in chapter 1, verse 13, it says, You also. But in verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, You Gentiles, specifying who he has in mind. We see again in verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So you, you were not Israel. Because you were Gentiles. Look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Near being the Jews, far off being the Gentiles. And then again, chapter 3, verse 6. This is a mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. So I believe what Paul is saying here in chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, is that God had a specific plan for the Jewish people to receive an eternal inheritance, to receive salvation. But that is now for you also who are Gentiles. It's a promise to give, that's given to us. So look at verse 11. In him, we Jews have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things According to his plan. There is nothing that takes place in this world that is not working according to God's plan. Involved in that is the Jews coming to Christ. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. But then in verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Those promises have been given to us too. These are our spiritual blessings. 
that heaven is guaranteed for us who are in Christ. And God put his seal upon that guarantee, which is his Holy Spirit. Now, we've seen throughout this chapter this language of of God's predestining. We saw it in verses 4 and 5. We see it in verse 11. We see things happen according to God's purpose throughout the chapter. And what we're reminded is that our salvation did not begin with us, but it began with God. And we think, well, what role did I have in all of this? Well, we see in verse 13 that we heard the word of truth and we believed in it. And this is what God has, has enabled us to believe in Him. But even still, it's God who brings it to fruition by sealing us with His Spirit. There's no room for boasting in this, brothers and sisters. These, this, is, this is how we are blessed. That God chose us before the foundation of the world. That He sent His Son to die for us. That He predestined us to be His. That He's given us the faith to believe in Him. And that He has sealed us for eternity. That is our hope. The Spirit has sealed us. When you, when you receive a letter in the mail and it's opened, you have every reason to believe that the contents have been tampered with. If you go to the store and buy a gallon of milk and come back and that seal has been opened, you have every reason to believe it's been compromised. Don't drink that milk. And in the ancient Roman Empire, when a letter was sent, they would seal it with wax. They would seal that letter so the person who receives the letter can know if the contents have been secured. And when it has been delivered to the recipients of the letter, they can say, yes, this is what was meant to be sent to me because it's got the seal of wax upon it. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit is our seal. He has sealed us so that we won't be tampered with. Our salvation will be secured. And when it, this letter, when we arrive in heaven, it will be guaranteed to us. He guarantees our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The seal demonstrates ownership and authenticity. We belong to God and he has promised us eternal life. But this seal is not guaranteed to everybody. This seal is only for those who've heard the gospel, who've heard that Jesus died for them and believed in him. See, we want to be unquenchable worshipers, but it begins there with surrendering our lives to Jesus. And we see at the end, this is all to the praise of his glory. Three times we see that statement. Verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. To the praise of his glory. And the first time with reference to the Father, and the second time with reference to the Son, and the third time with reference to the Spirit. This is the triune God that we serve. You see the picture behind me on the screen of those three ovals. That's the sign of the Trinity that some have, have used. And it's a good sign. Everything, nothing really captures the God that we serve. But as you see, there are three separate and distinct ovals. But they are all united by one line. And in the center, there is, a, there is a core that all are involved in. And this is the God we serve. He is one God, three separate persons. But He is always the Father, always the Son, always the Spirit. And our minds can hardly wrap around that. We can't. But this is what we see here demonstrated 
as Paul worships God for the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And this is the God we serve. I think of the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. To be a worshiper, we need to have that, that, that praise on our lips for all that God has done for us. He has chosen us and adopted us into His family. He, he bought us with His blood, giving us redemption and forgiveness and lavishing His grace upon us. He has sealed our salvation, guaranteeing our eternal security. These are the praises that ought to be on our lips. But I, but I do see at least five different attitudes in this text that will quench a heart of worship. Five different attitudes that will quench a heart of worship if we're not careful. See, because Paul had this heart of worship. He can look at these, these blessings that were his, and regardless of his external circumstances, he said, to the praise of God's glory. And if we're not careful, that worship could be quenched. And the first hindrance, the first attitude that will quench a heart of worship is ingratitude. See, Paul's just filled with gratitude. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us all of this. And so many times we can look to our circumstances and say, if God loved me, if God were blessing me, this job would be different. My, my marriage would be different. My children would be different. School would be different. And we measure God's blessing by our external circumstances. And what it does, it creates resentment toward, in us and bitterness toward God. And we lack gratefulness and thankfulness. And what Paul's saying here, blessed be God. He's given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Don't let ungratefulness seep into your heart. It will quench your worship. It will quench your worship. So un- ingratitude is the first attitude that will quench a heart of worship. A second one is a cheapening of God's grace. Now we can rejoice over Him lavishing His grace upon us. But there is, there, there is a mindset among some believers that they cheapen the riches of God's grace. They think that I can continue in my life doing what I want because God's lavished His grace upon me. He'll forgive me. He'll redeem me. This, this is not what Paul's talking about. Romans 6 tells us, do we continue on sinning so that grace may abound? He says, by no means. You've been saved. You've been delivered. You've been set free. And when we think to ourselves, God will forgive it. I'll just do it one more time. We cheapen God's grace. We grieve the Holy Spirit. Those aren't the riches of God's grace. That's a mockery of His grace. And if we have a cheap grace in our minds... You can't worship the Lord. You can't. Because it's, it's taking advantage of His grace. His grace is sufficient to cover our sins. But don't be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. A third attitude that will quench a heart of worship is allowing past bondage prevent present worship. To allow our past bondage prevent our, our present worship. 
As I mentioned, God's grace has been lavished upon you. And some of you, you come, you come to, to church on Sundays, you go to your, your prayer closet at home, you, you put on worship music in your, song, in, in your car, and you're trying to worship God because you just think, God, just a little bit more for you to accept me, just a little bit more. Because I know how bad I've done, I just need you to accept me, just a little bit more, God. I, I want to be sure and know that I know that I know that you love me, so I'm going to worship a little harder. Because, because I did this in the past. But that's, that's, that's past bondage. God's saying, you've been redeemed and forgiven. You don't need to earn my favor. You couldn't even do it if you tried. No, walk in the freedom that is yours, that's promised to you. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Don't let your past prevent you from present worship. God said, I've, I've, given you, I've given you all you need. I've clothed you with my son's righteousness. Don't, don't live in the past. A fourth attitude that will quench a heart of worship is despair. An attitude of despair. And it's easy to be despairing sometimes, isn't it? When things are falling apart in our lives, it's easy to despair. It's easy to despair when you watch the news at night. It's easy to despair when you read statistics about sex trafficking and child abuse and murder. It's easy to despair when we hear of roadside bombs and rumors of wars and nations rising against nations. It's easy to be despairing. But despair will quench our worship because despair at his heart says, God, I'm not trusting your sovereignty. See, though this world seems to be falling apart, and we know that sin, sin is rampant. Satan is roaming this earth. But don't despair, brother and sister. The mystery of God's will is that at the fullness of time, when God's patience has, has read, um, made its culmination, he will come. He will unite all things to himself. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. And those who have embraced Christ will have eternity with God. So we don't need to be despairing. And God in his justice will execute judgment on evil and on the wicked. Don't despair. But hope in God. And let our hope bring you to worship. The Christian hope is not a hope so kind of hope. Like when you bring your car out of the shop with 100,000 miles saying, I hope it reaches to 200. That, that's not a sure hope. Don't count on it. The Christian hope is not in the realm of potential or possibility, but it's in the realm of reality. Our hope is sure. Paul said we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The hope in Christ is not that he might bring us to full redemption someday, it's not that he might unite all things to him. Christian hope is a certainty. God will do this. God will do this. In his timing. And God, as every day goes on, it is a, it is a reflection of your patience. Because it's one more day that a sinner could repent and turn to you. But know this, that one day, the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And our hope will come to fruition. So we don't despair. 
Despair will quench our worship. No, we hope, and hope will drive our worship. A fifth attitude that will quench a heart of worship is unbelief. It's unbelief. Paul tells them, the Gentiles, these Ephesians, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you heard that Jesus came to die for you, to take the wrath of the Father, to propitiate it, to satisfy it, to give you forgiveness, to give you His righteousness, to give you eternal life, when you heard that and you believed, you were sealed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. But unbelief means you do not have the Holy Spirit. And Christ's blood does not cover you. Therefore, you cannot worship the Lord. Don't let unbelief prevent you from enjoying the worship of the Lord. And even for us who are in Christ, don't let the unbelief, don't don't fall into doubting God's promises. His Spirit has secured you. You can't lose that because you couldn't gain it. And you can't keep it because it's a gift. You can't keep it on your own. God has done it, sealing you with His Spirit. God wants us to be an unquenchable worshipers of Him. To be people with grateful hearts. To be people who see His grace. And don't cheapen it, but we we marvel in it. To be people who who know that our past is in the past when we are in Christ, that we've been redeemed and forgiven, and I can worship God now. To be people who hope and don't despair in the present circumstances. To be people who believe in Jesus Christ. He wants us to be an unquenchable worshiper to the praise of His glorious grace. Good News Bible Church, it's my prayer, it's our prayer. That would be us. That we can be like Paul. And we just sit down with these verses memorized and say, Blessed be God. And go on and just marvel and worship. Say, God, you are worthy of my praise. Amen. Would you bow with me as I pray? Blessed be.